the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 534 for January 2nd, 2015. Happy New Year! And welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Up. Happy New Year indeed to you too, John, and to all of our listeners. Mac Geek Up is the show, of course, where you send in your questions, your, your tips, your cool stuff found, all that good stuff. We answer your questions. We share all that stuff. That's what we do here. And uh, the goal, of course, is having some fun while we learn things. And we're going to learn several things today. I've already learned some stuff uh, during pre-show that we're going to go through here in the show. It's fantastic. This episode is sponsored in part by Smile at smilesoftware.com. Today, we're going to be talking about PDF Pen for iPad and iPhone version 2, which adds some cool new features that we'll talk about shortly here. Also, sponsored is Gazelle at gazelle.com, the place to sell off your old iOS and uh, and Mac laptops and such uh, because you got new ones over the holidays. So uh, check them out at gazelle.com. We'll talk about that in a moment as well. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, for another 24 hours before I head to Las Vegas for CES, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. Happy New Year, John. How you doing? <clears throat> Fantastic. Outstanding. Outstanding. Anything, so, uh, anything new to report? Um, yeah, the last day of the year. If you looked in my feed, you may have seen this. So, so it's something I've been wanting to get a picture of forever. I've, I've been seeing this big, big bird laying in my yard every now and then. And it happened on December 31st. So I was, you know, sitting in my usual area and I saw the big bird. And I happened to have my camera handy. And uh, it landed on, uh, on the fence between me and my neighbor's yard. And then it started getting closer to me. And then it landed on my deck. And uh, I used this... Uh, uh, tool. I think National Geographic has a, a bird identification tool. So you say where you are and you you indicate the colors, which in this case was white, brown, and yellow. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's a hawk. Mean looking bird. I think it was looking for squirrels, but a uh, beautiful looking bird. It's uh, Yeah, it's something I want to get for a while. It's funny that it happened uh, last day of the year. That's pretty cool. And uh, another quick update. Remember my battery issue, Dave? I thought I was in a world of pain, but it worked. So it the did. DFU restore. So I thought it didn't work. So I did this, this is your this is restore. your iPhone battery just for, for yeah. Those so the iPhone up. battery, which I had replaced, everything seemed great. You know, would charge up to hundred, would you know uh, die at uh, zero one uh, percent as it should, and then it started doing this twenty percent thing again. And I'm like, oh man. So I did the DFU restore, and uh, I did it the day of our last podcast, and. Uh, so when it was discharging, so as it got close to 20%, I'm like, oh man, you know, is it, you know, that would, you know, I was cringing, you know, I kept turning it on to see it and at 20% it shut down again. And I'm like, oh no, it didn't work. But when it started charging up again, it started at 1%. Oh. So, so there were remnants of the problem left over, but I think as soon as it died and whatever was corrupted uh, was uncorrupted, it's like, oh no, yeah, we're, we're at 1%. We're good. And it's been working fine ever since. So uh, definitely good suggestion um if you are having uh odd and, and i'm not the only one i mean there are a lot of people that have the same problem here it's not a unheard of problem yeah it could be a bad battery and uh, in this case it wasn't though it was nice that apple replaced it for me so 
Well, you know, and that's I, I was thinking about that while while I was getting tea right before the show. Uh, it, obviously, I you know I went through my whole thing with with my uh, with my iMac here, and it had me thinking. Um, over the summer, I replaced the power supply in, in the, this iMac right here in the studio um, by myself. And had I done that with my uh, with with my iMac downstairs, it would actually have cost me more in just parts to buy it than it would have to pay Apple um, to to do all the work and for the part. So, uh, you know, it, it made me think, gosh, a what does this mean for folks that, that sell parts? Like, I mean, there's a jillion places on eBay. That's where I got my power supply for this iMac in the studio and, and places like I fix it that, um, you know, that I, that I actually have the power supply and will return it. And I'm, I'm paying a, a restocking fee, which I'm happy to pay and all that. But what it, also, what does it mean for the little guy, Apple dealers, right? Uh, the, 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 like I've got um, Mac edge right near here. Me, what, what would, what would that repair experience have been like if I brought it to them? And I love those guys, but you know, would they have replaced my motherboard my power supply and my graphics card all for less than 300 bucks. I don't think so. You know, um, I, I, and I, I, it, I'm not convinced that would have gone as well. And that's not a good thing, right? It, you know, there's this weird disconnect between what Apple will do and then what Apple will allow others to do. So it's just, it, it, but you know, Apple's the place to bring your computer. If it's broken, it is the real answer. And uh, chances are you'll get it like I should have taken this one in the studio here over the summer. I should have just taken it into Apple and had them fix it. Probably would have been cheaper in the end and it would have less dust behind the screen. I don't know. I don't know. But clearly with your phone, I mean, they, you know, they've got they've got the ability to just comp repairs like that and the, and the budget to do so. I'm surprised because the article that I found is apparently a former Apple person who made the recommendation and, and they said that whenever they did a restore on a phone that was experiencing wackiness like mine, they would do not the normal restore that you do from iTunes, but they would always do this DFU restore. Now I told them that I did a restore, but maybe they misunderstood and thought that I had in fact done a DFU restore. So they didn't do that. Right. Again. So, uh, I have to stop by and tell them, you know, Hey, thanks a lot. But guess, guess what really fixed it. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it, it, you know, and, and the geniuses that to, at the stores are, are help are, are interested in hearing those things. Like when, uh, when Lucas had uh, his issue with his iPhone and they actually replaced his iPhone because it would, it was, it died after a restore. Right. So everything software wise, it's, it's totally fresh and it still died. But it wasn't the new one died the same way because it was data coming from iCloud that was corrupting it. And they were quite interested to hear it. You know, we tracked down the file and all that stuff and, and told them about it. And they were like, oh, yeah, thanks. Cool. But very interesting. <clears throat> very, very interesting. All right, John, where are we going here? I guess it's time to uh, it's time to go to Ken unless you've got anything else to report. Let's go. All right. Ken. Says we got a couple of mail questions today. We'll start with Ken's. Uh, he says, uh, while I wait for Chungwasoft to update update cargo lifter, this came in about a month ago, so they may have updated it. He says, Do you know how I get mail to do that uploading thing Apple talked about? That is, with a large attachment, I thought I read somewhere that mail would automatically upload to Apple servers, leaving either a link 
uh, if you weren't an iCloud user or the actual document icon, if you were in both cases, not actually attaching the file to the email, I can't find anything in Apple support pages. So yeah, this is um, mail drop. And if you upgraded to Yosemite, it for me anyway, was not automatically enabled on any of my machines. You go into mail on your Mac, you go to preferences, you go to accounts, you choose your account and you have to do this individually for each account. So if you have multiple mail accounts, you've got to turn it on for each of them uh, and then go to the advanced pane and in there, check the box that says send large attacks attachments with mail drop. And, uh, and it does, it'll put a little link in and again, it, it just like Ken uh, described if it's received by a mail, an Apple mail user, I don't even think you have to be an iCloud user. I think it just has to be, an Apple mail client uh, and it will, it will automatically kind of deal with it uh, as long as it's a Yosemite Apple mail client, but otherwise you can just get a link and you download the file and it works great. So yeah, that's mail drop. It's pretty huh. cool. Yeah. That's weird. I thought it was only for iCloud, but I'm looking at my Google and my Yahoo email and that checkbox is also there. Yeah. Uh, you, I think you have to have an iCloud account enabled on the machine, but it's not okay, only that's for the conduit. Correct. Correct. Okay, so it's using iCloud storage to uh, pack yeah. up that file. and all. Okay. It is, but it doesn't have to be an iCloud email account to do it. Yeah, which is good. Maybe. I mean, it. yeah, it's, yeah. And it works. I mean, I've done it. I don't even think about it anymore. People seem to, it seems to work, which is good. Um, yeah, so there you go, Ken. Hopefully, hopefully you've gotten that sorted out. I know we sent you the email a while ago, but uh, I wanted to get to that in the show. Andrew. Writes, he says, uh, I recently noticed a change in the email settings and wondered how I might accomplish the same action in the current version of mail for Mac. That is Mac OS 10.8.5 has a setting in the screenshot uh, that 10.9 and 10.10 do not. I would like to stop mail from downloading attachments and messages so that all messages remain on the server and not on the computer. Um, all of my accounts are IMAP and all use Gmail. So, um, yeah, you, you're right. There is a in 10.8, there was a setting that said um, in mail that said keep copies of messages for offline viewing. And then there was a drop down list. And uh, and again, this is in your uh, accounts advanced section. Uh, but that went away and you had you had three options. You could do all messages in their attachments um, messages without their attachments and then headers only. Um, you no longer have three options. You have two and it's because you only have two options. It's now changed from a drop down to a checkbox and the checkbox is automatically download all attachments. So, um, to clear up a couple of things it in, and you know, Andrew, the way you worded it, you said, uh, you, you want to stop downloading attachments and messages so that all messages remain on the server and not on the computer. The way IMAP works, uh, everything remains on this. Anything that, that is shown on the computer remains on the server. It, 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 there is no download and offline. If it's an, if it's part of your IMAP account, it is in both places. However, what has changed is the ability to only download the headers of the message. Uh, this was handy on a mobile device because you could uh, very quickly get your uh, your inbox listing without actually having to pull down messages. But I think somebody at Apple decided, you know, 
uh, connections are fast enough and bandwidth is plentiful enough that we can, we don't need to distinguish between just headers and the message, which just contains some more text. All we need to do is say uh, that there should be a difference between the message and attachments. So that's all we can do now is disable attachments from coming down. Um, and that is handy. And I do have that turned on on my laptop because um, there's no re I don't, it, my laptop isn't my main machine. I don't need to have, all my attachments archived there or anything. Uh, so that that's, that's the difference. And, and it, there is no way to go back to just headers with mail. There, it, it, it is worth pointing out if you have issues with mail and they're enough to make you consider a different mail client. Uh, Thunderbird is a free and quite full featured uh, mail client. I don't use it. I probably should. It would solve the Gmail problem that I have with Apple mail connecting with too many connections. Cause you can in Thunderbird, you can actually set the number of simultaneous connection attempts. It's going to, or connection uh, um, sockets it's going to make, but um, it's worth considering Thunderbird. We'll put it, we'll put a link to it in the show notes and you can test it alongside mail because if you're using IMAP, because again, it it's, it's all just syncing, you know, it's a client server kind of thing. So, any thought? Have you used Thunderbird, John? No, I'm a mail app type of guy. Yeah, only I've heard about it. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I was a. Do you remember? I was a Eudora fan until Eudora. I, I think it still exists in some form, but it's uh, you know no longer really a. Or I think they open sourced uh, the the original. But uh, that was my, you know, that was my email client of choice until. I think you eventually convinced me to uh, cut it out and <laughs> migrate over. Yeah. Um, and migration was, was fairly smooth. I, I, I don't know if it's an option anymore, but you know, mail app would say, Oh yeah, you want to bring over your, you stuff. Well, yep. yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. Yeah, it will. It will. All right. So, uh, yeah. And I used Eudora too. I mean, it was, it was great for a while, but obviously end of life and needed, needed to go. But, um, and that was, that's sort of the reason I went back and forth between mail and Eudora when, uh, when OS 10 since the time rather that OS 10 started, I was Eudora always with nine and before, and then, uh, and then it was mail and back and forth. And then I used MailSmith for a while, but, um, I've learned that if I'm going to use Apple hardware, using Apple mail is probably the least painful thing I can do. I think, uh, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe I should use Thunderbird. All right. Uh, Max has a question, John. Why don't we have, uh, why don't we let Max take the, uh, take the reins on this one? Hey, John and Dave, this is Max. Um, I was wondering in the mail app on iOS 8, um, there is, um, you know, how you can slide it over and you can either trash it or, um, flag it, but, some when you slide over it says archive and I was wondering what does that do? Does that um like does that delete is that another version of deleting it or not? Anyway, thanks. Bye. Yeah, thanks, Max. Yeah, so it you're you're right. You in iOS eight mail, uh you have the ability on a message to slide one way or the other and one way the uh the option will be trash and the other, it will be archive. Um, archive is set inside. If you go into settings uh, and then mail contacts and calendars, and then again, choose 
your account or accounts. This is a buy account setting. Once you're in the account, click the account again and go to advanced. Here you have a couple of options. The, uh, the first one to look at is what you have set for your archive mailbox under mailbox behaviors. Um, for me, I have made an, an archive or a mailbox called archive on my IMAP server. And that's what I have set to be my archive mailbox. Um, that's where things will go when you say archive. Um, you can choose whether at, when you're looking at a message and reading a message in iOS mail, uh, at the bottom of the message, you either will see a trash can icon or an archive icon. And that is decided by what the next setting is set to, because the next setting is set to move discarded messages into, and you can either have the deleted mailbox set or the archive mailbox set. And I believe if you have, uh, let's see, where am I here? If I, I gotta, I gotta find my right one. Yep. Uh, if you have, the setting set to archive, it will be archive at the bottom of the message. If you have the setting set to deleted, it will be deleted. That also changes which way the slider works. If you have it, whatever you have this set to is what the slider will be as you slide to the left, i.e. what appears on the right in the message listing. Um, the other one will be if you slide to the right and what appears on the left. Um, so I have mine set to archive. However, if you're in a message and you want it to do the opposite, so if you have it set to, you know, you've got the trash can icon at the bottom, but you want it to archive, or if you have the archive icon at the bottom and you want it to trash, hold down on that icon and you'll get a little menu that'll let you choose either archive or trash right there. So that's how that works. A uh, little bit convoluted, but once you well, kind of once you get the, it's nice to have these settings. In fact, I'm glad that Apple gave us some uh, some flexibility here. Because you can, you know, you can customize it the way that, that works for you. I, I like I archive far more than I delete things. And when I delete things, I'm usually just doing it from the uh, from the message message listing anyway. So I can slide very quickly and delete and uh, and then archiving I'm doing after I read a message. So works. It works really well for me. Yeah. And the question is, why would you want to? And at least for me, especially if you're in the hoarding, mm-hmm. <laughs> your emails from day one um like you said you can create and i think the reason you want to do it is you want to hold on to the stuff but you don't want to clog your existing mailbox because i think the more messages you have the uh you know you're going to get uh sluggish performance right yeah well no not necessarily or or maybe just just to keep tidy like i think what i do is like you know for example my, my tmo email i only have a year's worth in my main mailbox and everything else is in the archive I think it makes it also where searching may be more efficient if you, uh, you know, if you search a mailbox, then, you know, it has less work to do, though. You know, I don't think it's like a huge burden, but yeah, I don't I only I have one archive mailbox for everything. I used to be the type of person, you know, again, back to the Eudora days uh, where I had, you know, a John Braun mailbox. I had a, a mailbox for my wife. I had a mailbox for my dad. And that's where I would I, I had separate archives for each person. And uh, I gave up on that. Uh, probably 10 years ago when I finally realized that searching worked far better uh, than I would ever be at, at digging through mailboxes to find a message. And so uh, I just put everything in one archive mailbox and, um, and, and just search it. It works great. In fact, it works better. 
So, yeah, that's good. And it, it, and it saves a crap ton of filing time, obviously, because I'm just, I tap a button and now it's archived. I don't have to think about it again. Mm-hmm. We love searching. It's good. I also love, uh, I love being able to edit PDFs on the go. And, and yes, that is my, uh, my, my attempt at a smooth segue into our Ooh. first sponsor segment, which uh, is about Smile at smilesoftware.com. As I mentioned in the intro, PDF pen for iPad and iP- iPhone version two is available and they brought some new features in. So, I mean, first of all, it still works the same. It's just better. And by the same, I mean, you have the ability to edit PDFs on your iPhone or iPad on the go. And when I say edit, I, I mean, you can edit, right? I, I'm, I do this constantly. I have signed contracts while waiting in line to get on an airplane. Um, and, and it works great. You know, you just, you just do what you got to do. I have my signature. What's cool is they have a little, um, a library baked inside of, of PDF pen and it's on the Mac and on the iPhone. And I've put my signature and my initials and some other things in there and it syncs over iCloud. So it just exists. My signature is right there on the iPhone and I can paste it into a document. I can put it where I need it to go. I can initial pages or changes as I need to, because I have my initials in there too. And, uh, and then I can uh, create a new PDF and send it off. It works great. Um, to that they've, and, and you know, again, original features, uh, not even new, the ability to correct text in a PDF and, uh, and even fill in forms. So this is very, very cool. Uh, the new features, they've got uh, a new editing bar that, uh, that allows you to eat much easier access to, to the way tools uh, are, are, are brought in. Like if you want to bring in signatures or you want to change from being in edit mode to uh, select mode, that kind of thing. They've got uh, they, they've, they've done some logic so that they've got palm and wrist protection when you're writing and highlighting. So you, you're not accidentally uh, screwing yourself up by laying your hand on the screen. You can now password encrypt PDF documents right from inside PDF pen for iPad and iPhone. Uh, you can have it number pages automatically. It uses it now supports airdrop. If you want to send a PDF directly to someone else on an iOS device nearby, also, it uses iCloud Drive, which is great to see. And uh, and they've got a new kind of navigation for annotations uh, where it uses the sidebar to highlight uh, where you've made changes to a document if, if you want to highlight those. So you got to check it out. This is, uh, of course, from smilesoftware.com. It's available in the App Store uh, as well. And that's where we uh, that's where we always go to get iOS apps because there's nowhere else to go. So, uh, but check it out. You can go to smilesoftware.com. They've got links from there and all that good stuff. We've got links in the show notes too. So, uh, so check it out and uh, make sure you tell them thanks for being uh, an excellent developer and vendor of software and also for being an excellent sponsor, longtime sponsor of Mac Geek Hub. I believe they have been sponsoring us for over nine years uninterrupted. So, uh, so we're happy to have you folks and uh and thank you again for uh for your continued sponsorship of the show we, we love it it's awesome smile at smilesoftware.com all right john you want to take us to alan actually you know so I'll, I'll, we can set up alan a little bit alan is the the uh, question we talked about i guess just in the last show right about the usb 
the Wi-Fi signal that started to degrade immediately upon uh, plugging a USB hard drive in and immediately got better when the USB hard drive was disconnected. And we do have a solution. But before we get there, um, I had said something in the last show that was slight, it was misleading and, and actually incorrect. And I wanted to get that right. What I said, John, was that iStat menus and hardware sensors sh- did not show actual readings. It showed est- uh, it showed what the device reported as its power draw. But that's not true. The sensors in those, as you pointed out to me, are actually reporting actual draw. But there just there is no USB sensor reading there, I guess, is what um, what makes this even more difficult. Right. Right. And and basically, so there's two things. So one, the readings that you see in system information, when a USB device reports um, how much current it needs, that is not a measured value that is burned into the firmware. And the assumption is that or or it's called, I think, a device descriptor. And I created a a link to the there's a whole technical specification about how you're supposed to form this. Um, And the assumption is that the vendor actually put the right value in there. It didn't put some stupid like zero or whatever. And those are used sometimes. So for example, um, the computer knows when you plug in a USB device into a, a hub or USB bus, how much current it can supply. And if the device or combination of devices, like the last time I've seen this is sometimes if you tried to plug too many things into a keyboard, which typically doesn't provide a lot of power, it'd be like, eh, 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 can't, nope, can't provide that. Sorry. You're going to have to do something else. Um, so that's not a measured value, but yes. So either HW sensors or iStat menus are reading all of the, uh, I guess the general class of devices is an A to D converter. It converts an analog phenomenon, whether it be voltage, current, temperature, uh, to a digital value that you then see vary. But yeah, as you pointed out, Dave, the thing is there is not a sensor that reads the USB current. So your suggestion was excellent, which is, yeah, you're going to need a USB current um, measuring device, which you recommended. I really have to pick one of those up. Yeah, they're awesome. I, like I said, I really like them to, uh, it's just an inline thing. You plug your cable into it, you plug it into the USB port and it just reads the the value of what's being passed out. And, and it's handy to know if your charger is actually sending, like I've found that my, my iPhone six plus will charge, will draw more current on a two amp uh, power brick than it will on a one amp and it doesn't draw quite as much as my ipad but it will draw more which in theory means it's charging faster so you know it's just it's interesting to know especially for us when we're testing all these things but um but it's good to know anyway in fact i'm gonna put that on my packing list so i bring it to ces so i can check out any new stuff that people give me (laughs) i'm gonna bring it i'm gonna bring it to pepcom and showstoppers and like plug it in and say all right what's it do yeah anyway that's just me all right all right go ahead yeah so we did. Um, so I'll admit. So my initial guess as to uh, Alan's problem where he plugged the enclosure in and his Wi-Fi would, would uh, spiral downwards and then eventually not, and, and start not working right. Uh, my initial suspicion there was a power problem was incorrect. But thanks to our listeners, Dave, more than one listener emailed in and said, hey, John, have you ever thought that maybe it's an RF issue? And I, I may have for a moment, but I thought it was just highly unlikely because I didn't see a USB drive enclosure as something that's going to be generating a lot of stuff on 2.4 or 5 gigahertz. Um, 
And yet (laughs) it's certainly possible. But now you may ask yourself, well, how can I determine if when I do something, it's uh, causing problems with my Wi-Fi? Well, hey, the good news is that Apple provides you with a handy little utility to uh, determine this. So what you want to do is if you're on your Wi-Fi menu, you hold down option and you're going to get open wireless diagnostics. Once you open that, you're then going to see a window menu. And what you want to do is choose the performance window. You will then see a number of graphs that show you all sorts of fascinating information about your connection. And I and so what I suggested was, all right, look at the signal window, because that shows two figures, RSSI and noise. Uh, RSSI is your signal. The bigger, the better. Noise is, well, noise and interference. And the lesser, the better. And sure enough, uh, he sent us uh, some screenshots. Uh, And there's also a quality measurement, which uh, I think is kind of a, I think that's a combination of the two. Is that quality QAM, right? I'm not, they they don't, you know, they should put on here. I I don't see what units it's being measured. Actually, signal doesn't show either. It just shows numbers on the, uh, on the Y graph. Got it. Um, But yeah, so, uh, so that's what he did. So he said, so he started running this utility. It'll show you a real time graph. He plugged in his enclosure and all of a sudden signal went down or shortly thereafter signal started going down. Noise started going up. He then disconnected the enclosure. As soon as he disconnected the enclosure, the signal started increasing and the noise started decreasing. So it is in, it was in fact, um, I'm going to hope that it's just a defective enclosure and it's not the nature of this enclosure to blast (laughs) out RF on 2.4 or 5 gigahertz that disrupts your connection. It's a feature, John. If you're using the drive, you shouldn't be wasting your time on the Internet looking at cat pictures, right? This is a serious business (laughs) device, John. No, just kidding. But yeah, so, so this is a tip for anything. Yeah, if you suspect any device is is uh, causing grief with your Wi-Fi, well, this is this is where you go to see if that is the case. Yeah. So, uh, I never uh, expected. So I saw the emails come in. I'm like, oh, yeah, interesting idea. There's no way that's what it is. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. Well, again, I've I've never heard of that before. No. You know, technically, I mean, any piece of you, you see this on the on the sticker on the bottom. It says, you know, this device number one must accept any interference from other devices, and two may generate interference that would disrupt any other device. I right. Think that's a general disclaimer for anything where you have to test for RF, which I think is pretty much any electronics. Yeah. Um, so it could have been a loose shield or a bad solder joint. Uh, it, you know, it could know. even be the drive, right? I mean, the drive is spinning. It's possible that the electronics and the, I mean, yeah, it could be anything. Yeah. 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 It'd be interesting if they move that drive, if Alan moves that drive to another enclosure, if that solves it or right, you know, you got to a B test this, you got to test the drive in a new enclosure and the enclosure with a different drive. I'm guessing it's the enclosure. But it could be. I mean, it. We, we guessed wrong once already. <laughs> so, um, it's, I, I love the troubleshooting process. You know, um, rule everything out. That what even that which is improbable is not impossible until you have ruled it out. I love it. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it fun. All right, let's see what Chad has to say. 
Hello, Geek Dabbers. Uh, I'm calling to see if you've got any information on a topic you've been discussing for a while. And Dave, I've been listening to you on an episode of uh, Twit recently discussing the new credit card readers and NFC and Apple Pay. And I was in a store the other day and noticed that uh, Lowe's uh, and the different store I was in as well had just recently changed out their point-of-sale terminals, their credit card stripe readers, uh, with a brand-new one from Verifone. Um, I think it was Verifone. And I was pretty excited to see that the new ones accepted chip and pin cards as well as magnetic stripe, but they don't have NFC built into them. Uh, Costco just put this very same terminal in theirs uh, as well. So it was pretty disappointing to see that despite the fact they spent this money on brand new terminals to support chip and pin, no NFC. Uh, you were talking about Apple Pay and, and kind of as it relates to Google Wallet and uh, the new QR code system. And I understand the QR code system is only accepting debit cards because they're trying to get away from having to pay those credit card fees. When I've been using Google Wallet, I'm an Android user and I've been using Google Wallet for a number of years now uh, on NFC point of sale terminals, uh, I've noticed that it uses a credit card number that to the merchant shows up as a debit card, not a credit card. Uh, Home Depot is a place I've been doing a bunch of uh, purchasing at recently. And when I go to return something there, they're not able to put it back onto my credit card that's attached to Google Wallet. They end up having to give me cash because to them it shows up as a debit card. So it seems like Google Wallet might already be doing what the merchants want, and that is avoiding those credit card fees by giving them a temporary debit number. I'm wondering if you guys have got any info on this, if I'm on the right track, if that's what Apple Pay is doing as well, or if Apple Pay is still just using a regular old credit card when it creates that kind of temporary number that the merchant actually sees instead of your real number. Uh, but I think this new technology is kind of interesting, and Dave, it really sounds like you're into it as well and have some info on it, so I'd love to hear more. Thanks. Yeah, you bet, Chad. Yeah. So um, I think what you're experiencing at Home Depot is a Home Depot anomaly in that they they can't. Well, and it, it may not be an anomaly, right? It, it, like you said, it's creating a temporary number that is used basically for only that transaction. And Apple Pay does the same thing. Google Wallet does the same thing. It creates this temporary number. And yeah, it would stand to reason that that number is identified as a debit number for exactly the reason you're experiencing. If you need to return something, that number is no longer a valid number four days later or two weeks later to put money back on, right? It's a one-time use number uh, that the, the phone generates when you do the NFC transaction. So I think that's why you're getting cash back. no, um, it, it's not. And, and, the, and to, to jump to the other thing, the current C thing uh, that is the app uh, that like Rite Aid and and uh, and those places are going to be using in theory. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. That actually is linked. It's not actually linked to your debit card. It's linked to your bank account. And 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 that's how they're bypassing credit card fees. Even if you use a debit card, if it has the Visa or MasterCard or American Express, though, I don't think there are any debit cards with the Amex logo. I think it's just Visa and MasterCard. But uh, if you use a debit card with Visa or MasterCard, which is effectively what you're doing when you use Apple Pay or Google Wallet, um, that still they, the merchant still pays fees to Visa or MasterCard for the processing of that transaction. And that's how the NFC stuff works. It's still all going through as 
a, a through the merchant processor of MasterCard and Visa. And that's what currency um, is trying to get around. It's sort of a dumb system when you compare it to something like like NFC uh, based transactions like Google Wallet or Apple Pay, because what currency requires is an app that the merchant, you know, you, you, you it throws up a barcode, I believe, and the merchant scans the barcode and and then uh, and then it, it works. I mean, it doesn't exist yet, but that's how it's supposed to work, as I understand it. The issue there is. Your phone actually needs a data connection in order for that transaction to work. Whereas with NFC, the data is all stored in your phone. You do not need a data connection. The only thing that's happening is the connection on the other end with the, you know, the merchant connects to MasterCard or Visa or whatever their payment processor is. And it it goes through that. Um, I don't know about you, but inside the cement walls of Home Depot, my phone doesn't often have a good connection. And uh, and so I'm I'm curious to see how this currency thing works out. But um, but no, I, I don't think the fact that it comes across as a debit card transaction allows anyone to avoid fees. That's that's it's still a MasterCard and Visa thing. And um, and, you know, Apple adds their own fees, right? 15 basis points or 15 uh, one hundredths of a percent to the to the transaction right now. The, the banks are paying that fee and they say that the merchants aren't going to charge customers that fee and pass it along. But I mean, if the banks are paying it, they're going to pass it along to the merchants in some way. And then that's going to get passed along to consumer. I mean, it's, it's you and I as consumers that pay those fees, whether they're baked in or exposed. It's, I mean, the money's not just coming out of thin air. So uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see the hope of course, is that uh, NFC payments are subject to less fraud and then therefore maybe the discount rate, which is the 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 rate that MasterCard and, and or Visa and or the payment processor charge would be lowered uh, in the future on on NFC transactions. So it's pretty cool. But yeah, I try my Apple Pay everywhere, you know, a lot pretty much. And, and of course, you pointed out uh, devices that don't do this. But um, from what I found thus far, any terminal where you would be swiping your own card supports NFC. Um, or, or has a very high likelihood of supporting NFC. And, uh, so I just put my phone next to it. Now uh, I did use NFC or yeah, NFC. I used Apple pay at Rite Aid hours before the announcement was made that Rite Aid was shutting all this down, whatever it was a month and a half ago. But since then I have tried my phone at Rite Aid and it works. It pops right up. You get the little credit card thing. I'm able to authenticate. It gets all the way through. And then it says, uh, yeah, sorry, this terminal doesn't accept wireless payments. Um, if you want to pay with a credit card, hand it to the cashier <laughs> or, or swipe it in the thing or whatever. So it's, it's this artificial limitation that's, that's based on a legal document is really what it comes down to. And, um, I'm curious, I'm curious to see how that all works out. It, it's a, it's a stupid thing. Um, none of these companies, I don't think any of these companies with that are currency partners, uh, understand, understood at the time that what they were, um, Agreeing to, in fact, many of them have been accepting Google wallet payments for a long time. It was just the popularity of Apple pay that made somebody look at the contracts and say, Hey, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Uh, we agreed not to do this, even though we've been doing it for two years with Google wallet. So it's interesting, but it's cool. I use it at the, uh, the New Hampshire liquor stores. Actually, I had to go in and get some stuff right before Christmas and, uh, I was able to pay there. You know, it's not just Apple's list of merchants is, is just a kind of a, uh, a, a broad strokes, but it works in a lot of places. It's just cool. And it'll work in even more. Hopefully some, some of the new terminals that are coming out for chip and pin will have NFC that my guess is more of them 
will than won't. So we'll see. You haven't used it. Well, you don't have a six or a six plus, right, John? No, but I do have two uh, wireless enabled uh, right. cards, my master card and uh, I think uh, one of my debit cards, which is a Visa debit card. Yep. And they both have a chip and I get that it's kind of cool to do it with the phone. Um, the thing is when I've tried it, uh, when I've tried it at terminals that are enabled, it's like, oh yeah, that's kind of interesting. So, you know, instead of swiping it, I, I wave it in front of the uh, terminal that has, you know, the little radio wave symbol on it. And, and then the, my receipt says uh, contactless uh, yeah. instead of uh, swiped. Well, it's not just so that it it's cool to do it with the phone. It's that I don't need to have the card with me. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I get it. I get yeah. It. Which is, which is really handy. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of how's that uh coin thing working out there? Did they, did they kind of fall apart or uh yeah, they I know th- you were very excited about that. I'm still very sounds- excited about it. They, they said they started shipping them in November and uh, I haven't gotten mine yet. So there you okay. go. Yeah. For the uninitiated coin, I think being like a meta credit card, it would, it would, uh, you could, you could program, I guess it has a stripe and you could program your other cards into it. Yeah. It's got a, it's, it's Bluetooth and has a two year battery, but it has a programmable stripe. That's right. Yeah. It's, it, it's a great concept. I mean, it, it, the longer they take to get this thing out there, the, the less, the, the less um, longevity it will have. Right. Because as NFC catches on things like that are less and less uh, useful. Uh, but, you know, we'll see where it goes. So, yeah, let me let me look and see um, now that now that you asked about it, I'm going to launch the app and uh, see if it says where my where my thing is. Order status. Yeah, we continue to ship in batches and yours is coming soon. <laughs> there you go. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sure it is. All right. Uh, let's go to Randy. Randy says, I've got one for you. Is there a font that has all of these? Adds a slash through the numbers zero and seven and the letter Z, along with a bent lowercase L to distinguish it from an uppercase L. And I currently back up all my passwords into text edit, which I keep in an encrypted sparse image. And of course, every program has its own font style. Well, you can just imagine what ensues with copying and pasting and manually typing a password back in. I'm sure you've all been there. Yes, yes, I know all password managers should have an export function, but first, they are proprietary, and second, they all seem to have lousy formatting, and if not, they're buggy. Which, if my password app goes down for whatever the reason, I just want to add, I just want my little text file with all the company info and the passwords, which should work in any format or situation. Yeah, so your issue is, as you said, all the various fonts that come in, the best thing, though, would be to get rid of any um, meta formatting like fonts and bolding and italicizing and all of that stuff. And TextEdit will let you do this. In TextEdit, if you go up to the format menu and choose make plain text, it will make the document um, or at least the sections that you've highlighted. If you highlight nothing, it will make the entire document plain text that will strip out any of the extra formatting. And will allow you to, uh, to to better see what it is you're doing. Uh, if you want, you know, fonts like, um, oh, what's the font that we should be using here? Is it Monaco or 
Menlo actually for plain text is what, what text that it uses. And that may be what you're looking for um, is all of that. So yeah, just make your password document plain text. And and when you paste something in um, you can, instead of just hitting command V you can, uh, you can do, well, let's see what's option shift command V and that pastes and matches style, which will leave it as plain text. Even if the clipboard contains, um, uh, you know, a, a, um, a, a formatted uh, piece of data, it will just paste the text. If you hold down command option, shift and V instead of just command V when you paste. So that should do it. Right, John, did I miss anything there? Uh, I think that'll do it. The only thing I'd suggest is uh, that there's an alternative that, uh, so the goal here is to have a secure alternate store for this information. Yes. I think, I think that's what I heard. Uh, yeah, yeah um, you got that right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you may want to consider, well, at, at least if you're on a Mac, uh, secure notes is a is a nice secure um, way of storing things. It's kind of in a weird place in that it's in keychain access. So if you go to keychain access and you highlight a keychain, you, well, under the categories, you're going to see secure notes and you can create a secure note. And, uh, if you want to open it, it's going to prompt you for a password. My assumption being that it's uh, encrypted. Right. Um, until you provide the password, then it shows you what's in it. So uh, maybe check that out because it looks like it, it's, uh, yeah, it's just storing, you know, there is no formatting to the text there. It's just whatever you put in there. Oh, nice. So maybe consider that. Yeah, there you go. I like, you know, I, I am a uh, one password user. And I, I mean, I store my passwords in there. I like it because it now has the plugin for Safari on iOS, but not only that, um, I do have some data that's sort of loose free form data that I store in secure notes inside of one password and it is encrypted inside the vault. Um, the part that I like about it is those secure notes are also synced to my iOS device. So I have access to that data anywhere. And, and I've found that that kind of ubiquitous access, if you will, for me is, is a, is a valuable thing. So. Oh, you know what? I haven't, uh, I hadn't really looked at this in a while or I, I don't think I've actually used it for this, but uh last pass, or at least I'm looking at the, menu in yeah. the uh, safari plugin here and uh LastPass also has a secure note feature nice so, uh, yeah i consider that as well yeah i um i tried LastPass last year and it um I, the they ui I, I just couldn't did they get better i couldn't i couldn't get with the ui i i, I liked it i mean it, it the features were great and and, and it did, actually did some things um, that I liked even better than one password. It would do some auto filling. Honestly, for the, these days I've been using kind of a combination of Safari's, uh, iCloud keychain and, and one password. And that actually seems to be working quite well. Um, because Safari will do some autofill stuff that's helpful. Uh, but, but LastPass does a lot of that autofill stuff, which I liked. Yeah. Check it out again. They've, um, you know, they recently, uh, not, not too far back did, uh, you know, did a pretty major, Reroll of it, so okay. uh, maybe it's more to your liking. Yeah, but, I'll uh, check it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'm. Uh, and you know, they made a big step forward. You know, well, thanks uh, again to uh, uh, you know iOS eight, but right. uh, their plugin uh, on Safari is also uh, you know on iOS uh, does more than it did before. Before, I think their solution was kind of a hack in that you had to run their browser 
right. in their app. Right. Well, that's what one password did too. I mean, they all were kind of stuck in that, in that realm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right. Lots of options. Too I know. Options. Hey, I want to, uh, I want to talk about our second sponsor here, John, which is gazelle at gazelle.com. Gazelle will buy back your old iOS, your old and used iOS and Mac laptop devices. Um, they make it really, really easy to turn those into cash. You just go to gazelle.com and you, uh, you know, you, you, you tell them what you have before. You don't even tell them who you are. You just tell them what you have. Uh, you know, you narrow it down. You start, is it a tablet? Is it a laptop? Is it a, a, a phone? Yeah, it's a phone. Okay. What brand is it? It's an Apple phone. Okay, great. What kind of iPhone is it? Is it a four S? Is it a five? Is it a five S? You answer the questions. How big is it? What condition is it in? They've got three really easy buckets for condition. You're not going nuts about, is there a scratch in the upper left corner versus the lower right? There's none of that. It's just, is it, you know, faulty? Is it good? Is it pristine? Done. You pick one of those three, they give you a price. If you like the price, they ship you a box. The box is theirs, but it could be yours, I suppose. Uh, they ship you the box. They pay shipping both directions. Inside the box is a return shipping label prepaid by them and packing materials. Everything you would need to put your phone in, seal it up and send it back to them. Once they get it back, they make sure that you actually put the same phone in the box that you told them you were going to send. And then they send you your money. This is simple, folks. And it works really well. It totally takes the guesswork out of, uh, you know, turning your device into cash. If you've got a device you're not using anymore, just do this. Just go to Gazelle. If you like the price they're going to give you, take it. You're good to go. If you need a device, go to Gazelle.com. They sell certified pre-owned devices. So some of these things, they, they actually find that they're in good enough condition that they can polish them up clean them up, uh, maybe replace a battery if, if there was an issue there, right? Uh, test them out and then sell them back. They make a little bit of money on, on it. You get, to, you get a phone at a, a decent price, no contract lock, none of that. And uh, you're back in business if you, if you need a phone. So, uh, so check them out. It, again, it's gazelle.com. And uh, when you're going through the checkout process, they'll ask you where you heard about them. You'll choose Mac Geek Gev from the drop down because uh, they want to know. We want you to tell them. It's good for all of us. But uh, yeah, I use it all the time. It's it just takes all the work out of it. You know, you don't have to list your thing on eBay and deal with some crazy guy on Craigslist. None of that. Right. You know, you just done. You know, I think Craigslist users are crazier than Uber drivers. So you don't want to deal with that. You just want to go to gazelle.com. They've got a great interface. You can do it from the phone. You're going to sell to them. It's great. And they'll. If you want, um, they'll send you money via PayPal. Uh, they'll pay the fees. Uh, they'll send you a check, which they'll pay the fees on, you know, uh, the, the mailing fees. Uh, but they'll also send you Amazon credit and you get 5% more if you go that route. So if you tend to buy a lot of stuff on Amazon, maybe your, uh, your money's worth uh, 105% of uh, the value of your phone. So there you go. Check it out. Gazelle.com. Make sure to thank them for being a sponsor. They've been, they've been great with us for a long time, too. So, all right, John, moving on. I think it's time for, uh, for, oh yeah, Daniel, let's, let's, let's do this here. Daniel writes, I'm wondering if there is a file, like a P list file that I can modify to make a text edit document window open at the extreme edge 
of my 23-inch not Apple display. Currently, it opens and sits about two to three inches from the left-hand side of my screen. I would like to have it open and sit exactly at or very close to the left-hand edge. Any help would be appreciated. I think what you're going to want, so there's a couple of apps that are going to do this for you. And uh, so I'm doing this on the fly because I actually, I, I completely failed to answer this question when I, when I answered it. Um, sometimes I read these things quickly, but uh, Moom might be one of them. Moom is from uh, many tricks. That's Rob Griffiths. He was the original founder of Mac OS 10 hints. Um, those guys over, he's, he's one of the co-founders of Moom of many tricks rather that has the ability to move things exactly to where you want them. And, um, and so that, that is one answer. There's another app, John, and I'm trying to think of it while we're talking here. I, I, I'm thinking about dogs and I don't, I, I don't know why I'm thinking about dogs, but, um, um, remember window positions. What is it called? It's, um, golly, it's not moom. It's something else. Ah, oh, this is killing me. And it's like lazy dog software or something. Oh man. Um, anybody, anybody in the chat remember what, what this other app is? I know stay. That's why I'm thinking about dogs. The name of the app is stay. That's it. And uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes too, but that will actually remember per app what the, um, what the, uh, the, uh, and it's cordless dog is the name of the company. See, I know I'm not, I'm not entirely crazy, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but stay will remember per app what, um, where you, where you want things to stay. And it's really helpful if you're jumping from monitor to monitor, but I think it might solve your problem too. Um, while we're here though, uh, you can inside text edit, uh, go to the preferences menu and you can set the width and the height of the window that you want it to open with. So if it is always opening a window that is too small for you, you can change that. And that's super handy. Um, the same thing exists inside terminal. If you go into terminal and preferences, uh, you can go into settings and there's five, um, tabs across the screen. The window tab lets you set the size and, uh, both the height and the width of the window. You can also set colors and they actually have a bunch of presets in here. Uh, these days I'm living with the, uh, well, I, I took the ocean one, which is a blue background with white text. And I, I tweaked it a little bit. I made it a little bit bigger. And, uh, and then I, you can set that as a default. You can copy these things and move them all around. But um, you don't have to live with just the basic terminal view. And if you're in terminal a lot, it can be quite handy. In fact, I have one thing that I, I leave in a green terminal window, um, especially when it's, it's when I need to do git pulls on the server to pull down changes from... Uh, that we make to our, our uh, content management system. And I always leave the window green and I know that that's the one that's logged into the right account. It's sitting at the right spot and I can just type git pull. And then I type in our, our, uh, our authentication code and, and away it goes. So, and our authentication code is actually something I store in a secure note inside one password. So there you go. We bring it all back together. here. So hopefully that helps Daniel. Hopefully one of those will, uh, We'll get you what you need. Yeah. And out of curiosity. Yeah. To actually answer his question. <laughs> I, I can tell you where this file is. 
and actually add a minor little trick here, which you may not know about. So I did a search for com.apple.textedit.plist. Yep. Now, the bad news is that you're going to find a whole boatload of those. A lot of them are buried within the uh, Apple framework, private framework, and you don't want to touch those. But the one that I found, at least on this machine, Dave, um, so, you know, I did a search. I opened it up in where it opened with property list editor, which is Apple's program. Mm-hmm. But then I'm looking and I see on the top of, uh, so the top of the window has the name of the file, but I, I kind of forgot the path to it. Boy, if there only was a way where I could do some magic and find out the path to the name of the file or the path to this file from within property list editor. Well, there's a way to do that. So if you hold down command and you click on the file, it'll show you the path to that file. In this case, it's your home directory library containers. And that's kind of the weird twist here. That's the sandbox. Com.apple.textedit data library preferences. But um, yeah, I, I forgot that tip. It's like, mm-hmm. oh man, where is it? You know, and I just clicked on the file name and it does nothing. But if you hold down one of the modifier keys, then yeah, it'll show you. And I think that's pretty consistent across a lot of applications. If they list the name of the file at the top of the window, that it'll show you the path when you do that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and you're totally right to remember that looking in the sandbox, which is library containers. And then inside that, will be a separate container for each app that has a sandbox. And then inside that is a whole new, basically a whole new um, home directory that just that app gets to touch. And then, you know, that's Apple's new thing. It's not that new anymore, I guess, but you know, yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Bill, Bill has a question that, you know, uh, it's interesting. He says he's got, uh, a big, he's got a big problem. He has a big problem. It's exactly right. <laughs> he says since Do- Dropbox just raised their storage to a terabyte on their pro plan at 90 by 99 bucks a year, I decided to take advantage of it. It seems the perfect solution for all that I want to store. Now I'm hoping I haven't wasted my money. I have a MacBook Pro mid 2012 uh, that has an yeah. SSD with a storage capacity of 251 gigabytes. Now, the only way I know of to store data on Dropbox is to drag the data to the Dropbox folder on the internal hard drive. In order to do that, I have to have sufficient room on the internal hard drive to do so. Now, just like everyone else who made the leap from Spindle to SSD, I made some sacrifices in order to fit everything. Much of my data lives on external drives, but there is not a copious amount of space left on the internal drive that I can drag huge amounts of data to the Dropbox folder. So, Of course, the question is, how do I move data from my external drives to my Dropbox account? Dropbox says that the problems arise if the data is not on the internal drive and they don't advise it. I've Googled the issue and I'm surprised the issue isn't being discussed much, or at least not that I can find. Yeah, so you can certainly, uh, you can relocate the Dropbox folder to an external drive. It's not the default, but it's definitely doable. Dropbox advises against it because they don't want to have to deal with support requests when things get reset. And suddenly your Dropbox is syncing back to, you know, your home Dropbox folder. But you can move that. And it's really not a huge deal. Um, I don't have mine set up that way currently, but I have. And I've run into no problems doing so. I just use Dropbox a little differently now than I than I did back when I was storing it on an external drive. So, and you can do that on a, you know, each machine can be different. Uh, you can also use Selective Sync. 
by going into Dropbox, go to preferences, go to account, go to selective sync and change settings. What selective sync lets you do is choose which folders on your Dropbox sync down to that particular machine. This can be helpful if you have, say, your Dropbox folder on an external drive with copious amounts of space on one computer, but the other one only has, you know, a couple hundred gigs and you don't want to fill up everything. You can say, well, the only stuff I want to sync down to my laptop, and I do this, is, you know, my Mac Geek Gab folder and my Fling folder so that I have, and Fling is the name of one of the bands I play in, so that I have all that stuff with me on the road. That, but the rest of the stuff that I store in Dropbox, I don't need with me on my laptop. So I unchecked those and I don't have to worry about it. So that's that's the solution there. Um, if you aren't a Dropbox user, this is this is one of the things where Transporter actually really beats Dropbox. They do. You know, Transporter is a, a separate device. You have it at your house. And uh, and we've talked about it. You know, they're a sponsor of the of not this particular episode, but they are a sponsor of the show. Uh, and we're happy to have them. Uh, they make this device that is your own personal cloud. But the way their software works, you can use it just like Dropbox, where everything you put on your transporter is synced to your Mac. Or you can split it out and you can have what's called your transporter library, which is data that is only stored on the transporter and not synced to that particular Mac. So, um, you know, again, a different a different solution path than the one you're you're on. And, and I think moving your Dropbox folder to an external drive is going to be just fine. Just make sure that external drive is something that's always connected to your Mac. Um, you know, that if you if you disconnect it from your Mac and you still have Dropbox running, that's when it's going to start defaulting back to the internal drive. And um, I mean, I think that's obvious when we state it, but it, it is the big concern to to think about before you move down that path. Any thoughts on that, John? No, I'm with you. That that's actually why I like uh, the transporter because they support uh, these different models that give you a bit more flexibility and don't require you to have a big honk and drive uh, or enough space on all of your connected machines because you may not. Right. For example, I don't. I only have you know I have a relatively small uh, drive in in my uh, Mac Mini. Though so, of course now I have the monster one terabyte SSD. Oh boy, what a wonderful drive. Yeah, for like 330 bucks, you can get that now, right? It's crazy. Yeah, I think it's still on sale at, um, yeah, Max Sales has the, the crucial drives. Yeah, the, I got to say, the the prices on those are getting to the point where I'm, I, I don't even think I'm going to babble about these hybrid drives anymore because before. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> hey, hey, they're not bad. No, they're I better know. than rotational. But the thing is, to me, the justification for a hybrid, or they call them SSD hybrids. They're right. rotational drives with a large ssd like cache typically eight gigabytes and they're better than rotational drives but not as good as an ssd but the the price differential between those and equivalent ssds now is small enough yeah. uh, or at least when when they're on sale that um i, I don't uh, yeah it doesn't make much financial sense to to skimp um yeah they're just coming down i mean i never thought i'd see a one terabyte ssd for 325 bucks i mean come on i talked to larry at owc about those drives and uh you know, of course, he says, yeah, you know, our our drives, the, the OWC branded drives, he's like, they're better mm-hmm. than the Crucials, but that price is hard to beat. And I'm like, yeah, they are. And he's like, well, that's why we have them, you know, <laughs> like we can't beat the price. I'm not overly convinced that, I mean, li- listen, you know, Larry is a master. He's, he's a master at a lot of things and he is a master marketer. 
So, uh, so I don't blame him for saying that. I'm not entirely sure he might be right, but it's not a big enough difference for any of us to care about. I don't, I don't think crucial's drives are awesome drives. Uh, oh yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I ran, um, I ran a benchmark. It's not the only aspect, but I ran, you know, quickly I ran black magic speed test and yeah. I'm getting four to 500 megabytes a second, yeah. which is, uh, what they say you should get. I'm running a 480 gig M 500 crucial drive in the, uh, in the machine at the house. And I mean, it's awesome, especially on a, you know, a three gigabit SATA bus, you know, it's just, cooks. Oh, okay. Yeah. I got the six. So. You do. I know. Yeah. So anyway, there we are smoking right, the next a year from now. It's funny. We're going to look at this 339 bucks, uh, for a, basically a one terabyte, you know, a 960 gig drive and say, uh, wow, that seems expensive. So they're just going to mm-hmm. keep coming down which is as it should be. You want to take Michael for us, John? Yeah, this is an odd one. We'll see if we can get through it. I think I have a solution here. So Michael, Michael, I had the email up in front of me here. All right, here we I'm go. sure you did. Okay, good. Oh, no, I do. No, no, see, I'm, I'm with it. No, I actually had the email in front of me here. I'm actually running mail on the machine in front of me now rather than the PDF. Not that you care or anybody cares. Well, somebody may care, but <laughs> so, um, so he had two problems and I want to mention the prior problem that he solved on his own, because I think it has something to do with the eventual solution to this. So, um, his first problem was that a uh, Safari, uh, keeps launching itself throughout the day. It always launches in the background. So I only notice it when I happen to look in the dock and see its icon. I have not been able to associate it opening with a particular action I've been doing or app I've been launching. Is there a way to figure this out? I've opened console and searched on Safari, but get no hits. So this is um, item number one. So you're probably not going to get different programs, put things in different places. And Safari doesn't necessarily log interesting things. Uh, in the console, or at least in the place where I think he was looking. So if you open up the console, you're going to see a number of categories on the left. And for the most part, you, you uh, all messages is a good place to start. And then, of course, you know, in the upper right-hand corner, you can put in a search term and limit it. Um, but there's another place to look. And this is where I suggest that he looks. If you look a little farther down, you're going to see then another major category, diagnostics and usage. And if you click on that, you're going to see messages that don't appear in all messages, but they only appear in this category. So I guess they're separate files or separate paths. Wait. So I said, all messages doesn't have all messages? Not that I could see. It was in a different place. All right. I, I'll, I, no, I'm, I'm looking right now. So I'm looking at all messages and I'm searching yeah. on the term Safari. I don't see any matches. If I click on diagnostics and usage, I will then get messages that have the word Safari in them. So, yeah, man. So all messages, again, you know, we've told you before, lies, lies, all lies. <laughs> Look at that. You're totally right. Yeah, it's not. It's not there. Huh. So all messages, I think, is just the um, var log messages dot log file and nothing else. Right. Right. I'm going to I'm going to confirm that while you're talking. But keep going. This is good. Yeah. All right. So then he wrote in and said, hey, um, here's something that I saw. So this may be one suggestion. So he said, all right, you know, I looked and I did finally see a Safari related message. 
And he did. And it says Safari, com.apple.message.domain, colon, com.apple.safari.sharedlinks. Okay. Well, that's a, 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 so that's a message coming from Safari saying, hey, somebody is doing this thing called shared links. Okay. What is a shared link, you may ask? And I'll tell you. It's kind of inconsistent, at least across my machines, the way you have it set up here. If you look in Safari, you may or may not have a shared links category in addition to the other two categories that are in Safari. So Safari, if you click on the little book, you're probably going to see bookmarks. You're probably going to see reading list, but you may or may not see shared links because that depends on what you have turned on or off. Or at least that's what I found. So again, on one of my machines, because I don't have certain things set up, I don't see it. How do you see it? Well, certain services can put information in a shared links category within Safari. So I think that's why he's seeing this. Um, that's why he saw that message. Somebody said, hey, I'm going to share a link with Safari. Um, two services that I've seen do that. Uh, so if you go into system preferences, internet accounts. Um, if you have Twitter in that list and if you have LinkedIn in that list, or at least on my system, uh, that will link of course, uh, to your LinkedIn or Twitter account. And it'll also populate that shared, um, shared category. So one thing I would suggest is you may want to try to disable those and see if this behavior goes away. You can disable those accounts doing this. All right. But then that led me to another thing. So then he wrote in and he said he had another problem. And I think this is the real problem here. So that's a short-term solution, but it's not a very good one because you may want these shared links. Um, then he said, oh yeah, I had this other problem where kind of weird stuff was happening with my desktop folder and that my desktop folder turned into an app and turned into this or that. And I would see desktop coming in my open with list, which, uh-oh, now we're talking, uh, I think we have some serious problems, right? <laughs> And that last I checked, Dave, uh, that's not an app. Right. So I suspect what's really happening, but it links. So you may say, well, you're linking two things that have nothing to do with each other, John. No, I think I am. I think what's happening is so when the shared link thing gets activated, it's somehow telling the system through a corrupt launch services database. Hey, this just happened. Launch Safari. Okay. (laughs) That's my best guess. So my best recommendation here, I think this will fix it for him because it sounds like this other problem that he had, um, he was also able to fix it by uh, by changing some some mapping or changing the way the desktop file existed. I'm not entirely clear on that, but I, but I think uh, the bottom line is if you're having weird issues with things launching when you don't expect them to, uh, resetting your launch services database can't hurt. Now, there are a couple of ways you can do that. So one, I surfed and there are magic incantations that you can do in the terminal to basically reset this database. It's basically just a plist file uh, with a whole bunch of entries. Um, I'd say, Dave, the easiest way to do it is just go get Onyx. You can do it with Onyx. Yeah, and we had someone in the chat room say that (laughs) just as I was thinking. it. So Onyx has a choice. I think it's in the maintenance category where you can say, uh, yeah, please... um, yeah, so maintenance, rebuilding, there's a checkbox, launch services. I suspect he's got something corrupt in there, and uh, and it, it's launching Safari when it shouldn't, because somebody's mapping to it when they shouldn't. That's kind of what I got. 
Yeah. I, it, it, you know, these things are hard. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to know. Right. But, uh, yeah, I believe it. Yeah. It did make me happy that, uh, though uh, I was surprised at this too. I, I always thought all messages was all messages in the console. And in fact is not. So, yeah, that's something I taught myself while I was while I was trying to uh, trying to diagnose this here. Yeah, that's bizarre. Yeah, yeah, but I oh mean, clearly, goodness. yeah. All right, all right. What do we got here? All right, we'll go. Let's go to James here. Uh, and James says. I have several external USB disks attached via a hub to a late 2012 iMac uh, or sorry, Mac mini running Yosemite. The external drives do not mount. When I reboot the mini, I have attached the drives directly to the mini and they still do not mount. I have to power the drives down and back up before uh, they will automatically mount. I've found numerous reports of this problem on the web and have tried various suggestions, suggested solutions, but none of them have solved my problem. Perhaps you can help. He says, I was having this problem with Mavericks and hoped that it would be solved by Yosemite, but it, alas, it was not. Uh, I had similar problems too, um, especially after sleeping my iMac. I had, I had certain things that weren't remounting and certain, uh, certain things that would. And so now I have used a piece of software called Jettison from our friends at St. Clairsoft, the same people that make default folder. Um, it's a paid piece of software, but there's a 15 day free trial. So that's, um, it's, it's, it's certainly worth checking out. And I, I wound up buying it, uh, because it works for me, but, uh, but yeah, I w- what my issue was that if I didn't eject drives, it would come back up and say, Oh, this drive wasn't properly ejected. And all that was happening was the machine was going to sleep. It was a directly connected drive. Uh, but it's something about Yosemite was causing this. So, uh, so jettison for, I think it was five bucks solved the problem. It automatically ejects the drive and then automatically, um, remounts it when, uh, when it, you know, when it wakes from sleep and you can, you can totally configure it and all that stuff. So, um, that's what I would, that's my solution to any of these weird, there's something weird about Yosemite and external drives and, um, and, and the way all that works. So mm. that's what I use. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, I'm glad the utility exists because it means I don't have to write something. So that's, there you go. That's that. Um, I'm trying to think we, uh, we are almost out of time here, John. Maybe, uh, maybe we talk about Alec quickly here um, because, because we had a nice little pre-show chat about it. I'm, I'm looking at the time. Uh, yeah. All right. We can, we can try this. Um, Alex says, uh, and this was earlier this month, he says, in response to a recent podcast, I'm interested in setting up wired connections for my gaming consoles. My modem and router are in a different room, and the most practical setup would involve the Ethernet cabling going out of the window across my roof and into my bedroom window. I would like to use Cat6 cable if possible, and I'm wondering what the both of you think would be the best way to insulate the cable for the weather. It will be exposed to the elements and for my windows, since they will need to be at least cracked to let the cable in. I've considered getting some small PVC pipe to shield the cable and possibly possibly insulate the inside of it somehow. Also, in your experience, what's the best place to get cat six cabling of varying lengths, either in store or online? I'd rather not have to make the connectors myself, but I'm sure I could figure it out. Okay, 
Very geeky question. Uh, you know, I'm a fan of direct burial Ethernet cable, um, other than when it gets cut by a you know stump grinder. But um, but that's what you'd want to start with. It's built to be exposed to the elements. It has goop in it um, that that keeps moisture out and and works quite well. It's it's gonna it's what you need if you're gonna go outside. Um, you could probably just lay that stuff across across your roof and never think of it again. Uh, it typically comes on spools of a hundred feet or more, um, discount, low voltage.com discount dash, low dash voltage.com sells the spools. But if you're going to be getting involved in direct burial cable, you'll almost certainly need to terminate it yourself. Um, that, you know, it, you're not going to get lengths of this stuff with, with connectors on the end, because most of the time you're connecting it to an RJ 45 Jack, not, uh, you know, not a, 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 a connector. Uh, it's really not a big deal to do that, though. You get yourself a crimp tool. You can get them for, I don't know, I think they're like 10 or 15 bucks. And um, and then you just you just lay out the cable. You don't have to strip wire. You just strip the uh, the, the, the 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 jacket off of the, the cable. Make sure not to cut the wires. And then you just put the wires into the into the connector and crimp it down. I mean, it, it takes almost as long as it took me to explain it. And um, and and, you know, you should be should be fine. Make sure to use the. Uh, T568B wiring, which is the, the, the new way of doing things. Although I think if you used a, really, uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, now is that uh, to put it in English? So isn't that just straight through? Yes. Okay. So pin one, uh, cause I think in the past uh, you, you wanted to arrange the wires differently, but m- because of, you know, transmit, receive all of that stuff. But I think most or nearly all modern ethernet equipment is smart enough. Yes. You know, you remember the good old days of, you know, needing a crossover, crossover cable versus right. a regular cable. And, and I think, yeah. So doing a straight through where pin one goes to pin one and two to two and all that, I think is, is pretty much safety to yep. do these days. Right? Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 That's it. And that's what I do here. And it works great. Um, it, you, if you wanted to, and that's for, if you're putting it in the walls, right? If you're just making cables, then yeah, it used to be that you would, it was putting it in the walls. It was always straight through, right? Cause you, you wanted the walls to not be messing with things. Right. But if you're making, making cable lengths, you would switch it or not switch it depending on whether you wanted to cross over or not. Um, but, uh, but that should do it. You know, like you said, it leaves you with cracked windows. Um, I don't know the specifics of your house or where you live, but I, I, I would encourage you to find another way. Um, it, it's not, you don't want to leave cracked windows all year round. You know, I mean, you've got weather, the elements, bugs, right? You know, this is not a, a permanent solution. Um, you can look at where your coax comes in right for your uh for your tv that hole might be big enough to just poke a little ethernet cable through they're both low voltage cables they can be next to each other um and you don't necessarily want to put this stuff in where ac power comes into your house it's not it's against code i think you gotta have 12 inches between them um by by building code um i would recommend doing that you know but i've i've seen people run ac and uh, and uh, you know, high, sorry, high voltage and low voltage together. And it works fine. In fact, don't tell anybody, but I think I did that here, uh, between the studio and the office. So, so this podcast is going out over a 
a non-certified cable, I believe. Because sometimes it's just the easiest way to do it, especially if you're trying to deal with stuff in walls. Um, but, it, you know, it's not, that, it's not that difficult to drill holes and snake cable through walls either. In fact, these days with YouTube videos, you can learn how to do this in about 10 minutes. Um, you might not have the right gear, but in the end that, you know, that might be, that might be the thing. However, we're skipping two of the obvious things. My favorite is power line. Yes. It's going to add about a millisecond and a half, uh, delay. <sighs> and I know for gaming that every millisecond counts, trust me, but I'm pretty sure that adding a millisecond is better than having cracks in your, you know, your windows cracked year round. Um, so that, you know, that would, that would be one option. And John in pre-show, you came up with another. Yeah. And you, you actually touched on it and that you said, Oh, and, and you know, if you have cable running into your house, which uh, I do. Yeah. And I actually, I have it running throughout the house. When I bought this place, every room has a uh, F connector, I guess is the name for that connector there. Yep. Uh, for cable and an RJ 11 for telephone in every room. Uh, and they have this thing now, Dave, uh, very similar. Well, I think it's similar to power line is that it's using uh, a medium uh, not meant for computer networking for computer networking. And it's called Mocha M O C a multimedia over coax Alliance. And uh, first thing I came up with was just a quick uh, review at Engadget. Um, oh, actually this, this has been around for quite a while. Wow. This review was done in 2009, but uh, I wonder if they even make this. But it's basically a review of a uh, device where you use, uh, you know, in one end you plug in coax and the other end you plug in Ethernet. And yeah. uh, I think the, the modern Mocha stuff, uh, I think you're going to get better throughput than Powerline. Um, so look at that. I mean, they, they, they looked at a Netgear one and, you know, it was only a couple of hundred bucks, you know, for someone with two endpoints. Uh, and uh, it apparently, like Powerline, coexists with, with what the cable is already doing. In this case, it's it can coexist with your uh, cable TV. Well, that's the claim. So, uh, yeah, if you got cable running in the house, I, I would suggest that as well, rather than running something new. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, you know, they, they say that Mocha will run faster than Powerline in a lot of situations. So it's, um, it's totally worth checking out. I think. Well, I just... Uh, well, I think just because cable in general is meant to, you know, is, is a better medium for running high speed communications than, you know, your power cable. Right. right. It's actually built to do this, albeit not exactly in that way. Right. I mean, you're doing it with your Internet connection, right? It's coming in over coax for most of us. So. Mm-hmm. All right, John. It is that time. For me to start packing for CES. No, no, it's that time for us to wrap up the show first. Then I'll start packing for CES, I think. I'm sorry for you. Maybe I'll come. Maybe I'll. Yeah, it's too late to get it on the action. Oh, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe I'll join you next year. I don't think there's any way you'd get a flight to Vegas that was at all doable. In fact, I'm a little concerned. Oh, no, yeah, I, I, I looked. I, I looked like when we when we discussed yeah. this and the flights were like almost $1,000. Yeah, it was like, that's crazy. No, no that's right. All right, feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the address to which you can send your comments, questions, cool stuff found. Right? Uh, I, don't, I don't know, Dave. You know, I think this year we're going to do something different, and instead we're going to use feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Uh, yes, that's right. For 2015, the address is 
feedback at MacGeekGab.com. The phone number, however, stays the same at 206-666-GEEK, which even though it's 2015, the number is... 4335. But wait, there's less. No, there's more. MacGeekGab.com slash Google Plus. Fantastic community over there. You got to join us. It's fun. We're going we're gonna to get to 1,000 members by the end of this month. I'm, I'm certain of it. And you're going to help. So join uh, join us at MacGeekCap.com slash Google Plus. That'll redirect you to where you're supposed to go. Because saying the Google Plus URL would be a disaster. Uh, and no one would remember <laughs> it. So I want to say Happy New Year to all of you. You too, John. And I want to say Happy New Year to Michael Johnston. Uh, he will be converting this show to AAC. We'll send it off to him as soon as uh, we press, as soon as we turn off the red light here. He does the iOS show podcast as well as getappler.com. So uh, thank you, Michael, for all your hard work. And uh, Happy New Year and thanks to the folks at Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com, providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. And Happy New Year and thanks to all of the folks in our podcast marketplace. As we mentioned, smile at smilesoftware.com. Gazelle at gazelle.com. The folks at Barebones Software at barebones.com. Uh, Squarespace.com slash MGG and the coupon code MGG gets you 10% off. I just re-upped for my uh, my Dave the Nerd blog. I paid for that yesterday. iFixit.com, of course. Linda, L-Y-N-D-A.com slash MGG. And of course, the folks at Drubble and Connected Data, who we mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, I believe the MGG Dave. 50 coupon still works. Yes, John, go. Ah. Say you blew it last year. And you want to make a new new year New Year's resolution? And and anything uh, you could suggest to our listeners? Well, let's see. Uh, don't take any wooden nickels. Uh, don't believe everything you read on the internet. Um, but really, I think I think we can kind of collapse all of that into one succinct, concise, pithy, if you will, piece of advice. Don't get caught. <laughs>